Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only podcast in compliance featuring the top roundtable of compliance commentators. It includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and Sarah Haddon, the publisher of Corporate Compliance Insights, CCI. In this episode, we began a special two-part series on uh, the first six months of the Trump administration in 2019 around compliance. This episode features Jonathan Armstrong taking a look at compliance from the EU and UK perspective. Jay Rosen looks at the 2019 guidance, the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, released by the Department of Justice in April 2019, and it's antecedent to the Benjkowski memo. I sit in and talk about the three most significant FCPA enforcement actions from the first half of the year and what they tell us about the DOJ's strategy on enforcement and where FCPA enforcement may be going forward. All uh, rants follow the three principles, and I know you will enjoy this episode. If you haven't listened to it, check out part one Uh, Episode 48, which was uh, posted a couple of weeks ago. Of course, we'll link to it in the show notes. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to Everything Compliance, Episode 49, the Trump Administration and Compliance, the 2019 Half-Year Report, Part 2. Today we have Jonathan Armstrong, Jay Rosen, and I'm going to sit in for a few remarks as well. So, Jonathan, you've had uh, quite the whirlwind over in the United Kingdom, uh, a visit from uh, our beloved president, uh, Donald Trump, and entire family, got to meet with the queen. Uh, First of all, uh, we'd like a report on the dinner, most specifically, not only the cuisine, but the uh, silver service. Uh, And then after that, uh, perhaps some thoughts on uh, what you see on the first half of the year for compliance from across the pond. Yeah, um, I'm happy to do that, uh, Tom. So a lot of the silver service is, is made and maintained by a former clients of mine, uh, Chimo Holdings in Sheffield. They uphold great British traditions. They're cutlers to the Queen and to the Armstrong household, I'm pleased to tell you. Um, However, I suspect the budget for one of those projects is substantially higher than the other. And maybe we'll do that as a as a quiz for this episode, can you guess is either the Armstrong budget or the Queen's budget somewhat higher for cutlery? But uh, the cutlery, I've no doubt, was splendid. The cuisine would have been good. And those of you who were at the SCCE uh, and won the um, the silent auction will be able to speak to the quality of the sparkling wine served as well. Um, but I think that Trump's visit in some respects Uh, didn't go as badly as it could have done. It certainly got off to a very bad start with the, um, I think the mayor of London called it the childish abuse of him. And there's obviously something of a track record between Sadiq Khan and Trump. But given that it had a bad start, I don't think things ended that terribly. Obviously, the Trump family 
liked the fact that they were hosted by the by the Queen, and I think the Queen uh, and the royal family, some would say, clearly took one for the team in um, in in making Mr. Trump welcome, despite some of the uh, previous, as we'd say. As far as the uh, consequences of trade with the UK and Mr. Farage, et cetera, et cetera, are concerned, then I would say buckle up because we could be in for a shaky ride here. One of the things that I think is slightly odd from my perspective is that traditionally in trade terms, the EU has been quite retaliatory. So when, I don't know, China has taxed whiskey, the EU has immediately taxed cashmere. And we've looked for almost tat-to-tat tariff swaps. Um, And obviously, some nations have tried to do that with the US. You know, the uh, effect on Harley-Davidson motorbikes, for example, is well felt. But I think one of the things that perhaps a US audience has missed and certainly has been missed over here, is the fact that as well as the, uh, some might say, greater provocation of the Trump administration versus previous administrations, we also have a change in complexion uh, at the European end. So we've just recently had European Parliament objection uh, elections. You'll remember that the UK was a almost a somewhat uh, unwilling participant, certainly in some quarters in those elections. And there was a huge swing to a pro-Leave party, which perhaps isn't a surprise. Uh, And as far as timing is concerned, then the current European Parliament ends on July 1. There'll be a new session of the new Parliament with, with all the new candidates on July 2, they will then elect a a European Commission president, which could happen as early as July. And then a new European Commission will be selected uh, probably uh, by October. And that's a critical point because we have had somewhat conciliatory uh, people at a European Commission level at the last regime. And there is no guarantee that that will be replicated, particularly when you look at the makeup of the European parliamentary elections. Whilst the swing wasn't as great to right-wing nationalists uh, across all of Europe as some predicted, and it certainly wasn't as great a swing as we had in the UK, there were gains by nationalists. And some key countries like Switzerland, which isn't in the EU, but is in, uh, in, instrumental still in, in, in shaping EU thinking. In Switzerland, the nationalists uh, had 29% success at their elections. In Austria, 26%. I know a concern to many, including people like Max Schrems, who, who we know uh, from other a- aspects. And in Hungary, even more substantial, one nationalist party 
got 49% of the popular vote, and another nationalist party, 19%. So majority nationalist parliament there. And even in some uh, some of the, uh, what might you say, more balanced countries, up in Scandinavia, for example, nationalist party in Sweden, uh, more than 17% of the popular vote. The same in Finland, 21% in, in Denmark, 17, approaching 18% in Estonia. So some of these countries who, because of the Breivik attacks and, and incidents like that, have resisted the rising tide of nationalism are getting to almost a quarter of the uh, popular vote for nationalists. And that's bound to be reflected in the next European Commission. So whilst, like the Queen, we've had uh, a commission that's sometimes taken one on the chin for the greater good, the difficulty that we might get from October onwards is a commission that wants to be seen to play tough for the rising tide of nationalism across Europe. And that, coupled with a nationalistic US administration, would, would at least uh, tell you that there's a possible greater conflict on the horizon. And what does this mean for compliance professionals? Well, I know, um, uh, for, for example, there's a, a lawyer in, uh, in New York called Bob Leo, who, who some of my clients have used for things like trade tariff issues. Uh, they're a you know, practice that specializes in those things. And as a result, you might get an alert from, from them you know, once a month or whatever to say that tariffs have, uh, have changed. I can remember one Friday getting three alerts in one day, and I spoke at the ICPA, I guess, a month or so ago when they were over in London, uh, International Compliance Professionals Association. These are people who are monitoring tariffs you know, on a, on a monthly basis, but many of them are now having to monitor tariffs on a, on a daily basis and use specialist software uh, to do that. So compliance professionals across the board are likely to see an increase in work if two nationalist regimes go head to head. And that's going to be felt in areas of tariffs, but not only that, in areas like sanctions as well, where there's been some harmony very broadly in, in sanctions regimes, particularly things like Russian sanctions, where individuals who are sanctioned by the US regime are often sanctioned by the EU regime and vice versa. Not only have we got a potential splitting of those regimes with the UK coming out of the EU regime if Brexit happens, but we've also got a potential misalignment of interests in terms of imposing sanctions. You know, Iran would be one area, um, Israel uh, potentially another. We know that um, that some of the uh, nationalist parties are less friendly to Israel than uh, you, you know than than is currently the case, uh, with all sorts of horrific uh, connotations about that. But we could see some real issues, I think, for multinational organisations, and that could mean that compliance professionals are going to have to think very quickly 
about the implications of where they move goods and supplies from, who they deal with, the third parties they use in different jurisdictions. If we do have more of a conflict between those two uh, you know, big beasts on either side of the Atlantic. Jonathan, the um, any uh, well, let me start off. Let me refocus a little bit. Typically, on enforcement actions brought by regulatory agencies, it does not matter who's at the top of the government. So, for instance, the Department of Justice would uh, move forward with, uh, I don't want to say routine FCPA enforcement actions or routine trade sanction uh, enforcement actions, but it, it really doesn't matter who's at the head of the administration. Is that uh, true in the United Kingdom as well, that there's a professional cadre uh, in the regulatory and prosecutorial services uh, that will enforce the laws, or does it really depend on who's at the top? I think certainly in the UK, where you know the prosecutors are more uh, insulated, if you like, from politicians, and, and you know we've seen episodes of that where um, where regulators have asserted their independence. Uh, independence. I don't think that's necessarily true for the uh, whole of the EU. Obviously, some uh, of the recent joiners to the EU are coming out of the Soviet regime. And I think you get the same sort of activities there that you do in other jurisdictions, you know, like Africa, where the new regime uh, with regime change comes uh, investigations into the previous regime, sometimes justifiably, sometimes possibly not so. And I, and I think that almost certainly we're going to see, you know, a country like Hungary have all sorts of investigations into prior regime and all sorts of allegations of the conduct of the new regime. So I think we will have that separation between the interests of politicians and the interests of prosecutors in you know, more developed democracies. But there's still this potential to go back to old Soviet ways in some of the eastern half of Europe in particular. And then I would ask uh, maybe to move down to the continent a little bit. And you spoke about the um, retaliatory retaliatory nature, potentially, of an EU-wide response would that retaliatory nature, in your opinion, increase uh, if the EU Parliament and EU Commission was more nationalist focused? Yeah, my gut feeling it's going to have to be more nationalist. I think these, well, as I say, whilst there wasn't as big a swing as some predicted, I think that we are going to see more nationalist MEPs. And I think that will be reflected in a... Uh, European Commission that has more of an eye on nationalist feeling, not only because some of those that are putting them into power have got in on a nationalist ticket, but also because politicians of whatever hue will want to be seen to be listening to that trend. Just as in the UK, we've had politicians from Theresa May down who voted 
remain, but are having to listen to the Brexit voice, then I think even those, uh, you know, free trade um, internationalist MEPs will also be listening to the nationalist voice much louder than they uh, or with much more attention than they have in the past. I guess in summary, they're going to have to play to the gallery and the gallery's tastes are changing. What a great uh, tagline. <laughs> we could even go Jethro Tall and say the minstrel in the galleries. <laughs> oh, let's. Jay Rosen, what's been on your mind about the Trump administration compliance in the first half of 2019? Well, I think the thing that's been on my mind, which has been on the mind of many people, was the uh, 2019 guidance, which is designed to supplement the principles of the Federal Constitution of Business Organizations and the Justice Manual, which we formerly was known as the U.S. Attorney's Manual, and provide assistance to prosecutors in thinking through charging decisions. Specifically, the 2019 guidance states that the document is meant to assist prosecutors in making informed decisions as to whether and to what extent the corporation's compliance program was effective at the time of the offense and is effective at the time of the charging decision or resolution for purposes of determining the appropriate resolution. The 2019 guidance then goes on three fundamental questions that prosecutors must begin their analysis with. Number one, is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? Second, is the program being applied earnestly and in good faith? In other words, is the program being implemented effectively? And number three, does the corporation's compliance work in practice? This new guidance expands and fleshes out concepts which Benkowski laid out last fall when he announced the Benkowski memo about the DOJ's use of corporate monitors going forward. When you read the 2019 guidance in conjunctions with its antecedent, the Benkowski memo released in October 2008, you'll see critical elements for companies to include in their corporate compliance programs to help them avoid a monitorship. These include making investments to improve your corporate compliance program, tightening internal controls as well as program testing, demonstrating that the prevention or detection prongs of similar will, uh, will, will deal with similar misconduct in the future. And finally, timing is the key differentiator between these two elements of guidance. The previous Benkowski memo focuses on expectations during an FCPA investigation or enforcement action, but the new 2019 guidance focuses on what you should do before you ever get to that point. The word culture is used prominently throughout the 2019 guidance. It appears top areas spanning from policies and procedures to tone at the top, even includes the board of directors, senior management, all the way down through middle management. It also emphasizes creating, measuring, and improving culture. Moreover, a clear message insists that an organization needs to actually assess its culture. Culture needs to be representative, represented in embedded corporate values and not simply through squishy social science concepts. Simply put, Culture is a foundational internal control that guides the behavior of employees. Without that internal control, all of the rules, regulations, policies, and procedures will be less effective. 
last week uh, on the um, Tom Fox AMI podcast, you happened to speak with my colleague, Eric Feldman, and got his take on the 2019 DOJ guidance. And he sees this as being a treasure trove of opportunity because it provides details into how prosecutors are going to be thinking, and more importantly, how they are being directed to think about an organization's ethics and compliance obligations, and finally, whether companies under investigation are going to receive credit at the end of the day. Eric feels that the 2019 guidance not only sets some minimum standards pointing to the length and discussion of culture, as we just noted, but literally throughout the entire document and every aspect of the compliance program. Eric has an interesting insight, which is that the window of opportunity between the time of the offense and the time of the charging decisions during which he believes the DOJ is specifically laying out for the company that when an offense occurs, companies have a lot more power than they may have originally thought to take lemons and turn it into lemonade. The way to do that is through remediation of the compliance program and the response to the wrongdoing. The use of the word culture throughout this document, from policies and procedures to ensure con culture from conduct to tone from the top, starting with the board and going all the way to management. Moreover, an organization needs to actually be assessing the culture of their organization. The DOJ seems to have embraced culture as a key component, not only of a compliance program, but also of a company into their values going forward. My colleague Eric takes it a step further as he views culture as more than just a social concept. It's a foundational or internal control that guides the behavior of employees. And without that internal control, all the other rules, regulations, policies, and controls you have in place aren't going to be effective if they're not supported by culture. Jay, do you see... Uh, you, or rather, you talked about the Benchkowski memo focusing on what uh, you should do when you're in an investigation. And then, of course, the 2019 guidance says previous, um, previously before a, any investigation begins. Do you really see these two documents as literally having or sh they should be read together as as one kind of solid straight line of what to do beforehand, what to do during, and then what to do after? I think it would be foolish not to. I think the DOJ, uh, you know, over the last two, two and a half years has been very meticulous about laying out a roadmap on what companies can do to uh, ameliorate their situations by any type of fraud or any illegal activity that's happened. And with this, uh, the new 2019, I, I believe, as we're saying, is that they really are should be bookending the process. And the more and more information that DOJ puts out there, the more sunshine and transparency they uh, strive to provide, I think the better off companies can really inoculate themselves about running into some nasty situations. So uh, I'm going to sit in on uh, this episode because I think we had uh, three significant FCPA enforcement actions from 2019, the first half of the year, that really inform not only the compliance practitioner, but also how the Department of Justice is going to utilize the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which was announced in November 2017 by Rod Rosenstein. 
Uh, each of these results demonstrated uh, the FCPA corporate enforcement policy at work. And uh, Brian Zbinskowski uh, spoke about them at length at the ECI Impact 2019 key- keynote. So the first one was Fresenius. And Fresenius, uh, in this case, did not self-disclose and therefore was not eligible for a declination. Yet the company did receive a 40% reduction in the minimum of the U.S. sentencing guidelines as a criminal fine and penalty. Fresenius achieved this reduction through its extensive remediation and robust cooperation with the Department of Justice in the investigation. It was not only uh, the robust nature of the investigation, uh, but the assistance that Fresenius provided to the Department of Justice. The company went above and beyond in obtaining and providing documents, securing securing witnesses' testimony, presenting witnesses to the Department of Justice, and disclosing conduct that was outside the scope of its initial voluntary self-disclosure. In the area of remediation, the company took swift steps to terminate or separate from employment those directly involved in the bribery schemes, enhancing its internal controls, policies, and procedures, and upgrading its third-party program, and increasing oversight and monitoring. Yet, with even all this, the company was required to have an independent monitor oversee the company's compliance program. In his speech, Benkowski said the Department of Justice assesses a compliance program at the time of the incident which led to the violation and then at the time of the resolution. If the DOJ is satisfied as to the robustness of the compliance program, it will allow the company to self-report on the implementation of the resolution. If it does not, it will require a monitor. Mitchkowski said the company had made a number of improvements to its compliance program, but had not yet fully tested that program. So the Department of Justice imposed a two-year monitorship focused on the factors giving rise, which gave rise to the underlying claim. Uh, The second case is perhaps the most interesting, and that's the Cognizant Technologies case. So while Fresenius did not feature self-disclosure, Cognizant Technologies did. The self-disclosure was a critical element in the company receiving a full declination in the face of C-suite activity directing the bribery scheme. About the declination, Benkowski said nothing, notwithstanding the fact that the misconduct reached the highest levels of the company, we declined prosecution, uh, and the Department of Justice made clear why. The company voluntarily self-disclosed the conduct within two weeks of when the board of directors learned of it. As a result, the department was able to identify the culpable individuals and the DOJ charged the former president and the former chief legal officer criminally for their involvement in the scheme. Benchkowski has uh, also went further than uh, explained the detect prong of detect, prevent, and remediate. It's very significant for the Department of Justice. The reason being an effective program is more likely to have the types of controls in place which pick up bribery and corruption, which might occur within an organization. In other words, a compliance program can play a significant role in the Department of Justice's investigation of criminal wrongdoing. This goes a long way in explaining the reasoning behind the declination in this case. Even with the C-suite involvement of the CEO and general counsel, the company was still able to obtain a declination. The reason that the company's compliance program had detected the issue and the board of directors had taken charge and self-disclosed to the Department of Justice within weeks of being, uh, two weeks of being notified. The third case, of course, is MTS. MTS had none of the factors present in the first two cases, which led to the declination and significant reduction in the fine and penalty. 
In applying the policy factors, the company did not disclose to the Department of Justice. Its cooperation and remediation was lacking because it was slow to provide information and evidence in response to Department of Justice requests, and it failed to discipline senior executives involved in the conduct. The Department of Justice also noted a mitigating factor, including the fact that the third party expropriated the company's assets, resulting in no realized pecuniary gain to the company. As a result, the Department of Justice and the company agreed to a total fine equal to 25% above the bottom of the U.S. sentencing guideline range. Note that's an uplift above the bottom. Beyond the monetary penalty, the company's wholly owned subsidiary pled guilty to uh, conspiracy to violate the FCPA's books and records provisions. Finally, the company was required to have a three-year monitorship as the company had not fully implemented or tested a compliance program at the time of the resolution. Going forward, the application of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, compliance practitioners need to uh, read that policy, study these three cases, and be aware of which way the department will go depending on how you act both before, during, and after uh, an investigation. So some pretty powerful information from the Department of Justice and really tells you where this Department of Justice, I think, is going to take uh, FCPA enforcement going forward. So, Tom, I've got a question for you. We're always talking about the internal calculus that a company needs to do to decide whether or not it self-discloses or whether or not it remediates. And it appears in these three different examples that you've given, uh, each of them have a different result. And they go from being, um, you know, very helpful to the government to not doing anything and still getting only 25 percent above the floor. Uh, how do you think the calculus has changed now with the Benskowski memos and the now 2019 guidance? So in terms of self-disclosure, Jay, I think these three cases clearly demonstrate the department is attempting to encourage self-disclosure. You frankly cannot get a more powerful example than the Cognizant Technologies case, where you had literally C-suite involvement in the form of the CEO a general counsel, and there may be even others who are indicted somewhere down the road. The Department of Justice wants to encourage self-disclosure. Uh, they believe it's in their interest to do so, and companies need to be very aware of this. The other thing is that uh, even if uh, you make the internal decision not to self-disclose and attempt to remediate the issue and uh, move forward, you still uh, run a very large risk of the Department of Justice finding out uh, about your uh, uh, conduct. So uh, there's a wide variety of ways the department can find out. And this uh, is always going to be a, a difficult question going forward. But the DOJ's made clear, uh, come to us, uh, self-disclose, and you'll get real benefits, particularly if you uh, take the steps that we lay out in the Benchkowski memo and even using the 2019 guidance as a roadmap for the remediation of your compliance program going forward. Great. I got one more follow-up, Tom. Um, what If you looked in your crystal ball, what do you think could happen in the second half of this year or going into 2020 that the DOJ could do to uh, further entice companies to uh, self-report and to become a partner with the government? Is there anything else that they could add to make it more attractive for businesses to do the right thing? Well, Jay, if we... St- 
stepped outside the FCPA world and considered compliance more generally within a corporation, we had a, a very significant um, development and announcement by Department of Treasury when OFAC came out with a sanctions compliance program framework. Uh, that framework focused much more on third parties, not so much on the sales side, but on the customer side and the supply chain side. So it wouldn't surprise me to see the Department of Justice sort of take these developments and incorporate those into their thoughts around a best practices compliance program. And um, at the Compliance Week 2019 conference, uh, Assistant Attorney General Claire Murray uh, basically said that the Antitrust Division is going to come out with a compliance program framework. So we now see what started at the uh, fraud section, specifically the FCPA unit, as far back as 2012 with the uh, FCPA resource guidance, uh, moving forward with the pronouncements made by the Department of Justice, the 2016 pilot program, the 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs authored by Wei Chen um, and released in February 2017, the new corporate enforcement policy announced by Rod Rosenstein, and then uh, the Benchkowski memo and uh, the 2019 uh, guidance. Uh, we see the Department of Justice really trying to work with companies, I think, on a much more holistic basis and a wide variety of laws. And when you have uh, subtle differences in the frameworks because of the different natures in the laws, like the difference in the OFAC policy and the Department of Justice policy, you see uh, a lot of cross-fertilization. So I would expect to see more of that. If we get an antitrust compliance program framework out of the antitrust division, that's going to be probably a game changer. I mean, Mike Volkoff, not one typically uh, prone to hyperpole, called the OFAC compliance framework a game changer. And if we get one out of antitrust, that will literally be one because we haven't seen anything like that from antitrust, uh, the antitrust division ever. So I would expect to continue to see uh, a wider acceptance of compliance, self-reporting as a key part of the Department of Justice's attempt to uh, regulate and prosecute going forward. And I would see companies responding with greater compliance. Great. Thanks, Tom. And since you are pinch hitting, do you have a rant or rave to share with our folks out there? I do. I have a rant. So I was traveling this week and uh, for the first time I went to a Airbnb and I attempted to access the Airbnb, and there was apparently a FUBAR, and I was not provided an access code. But I had an email with a very helpful, always staffed, 24-hour uh, hotline that I could call. So, uh, fearing not, I called the hotline number to find it was a not a working number. So, the moral message and statement and my rant is, if you have a 24-7 very helpful hotline. Make sure it's a working number. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I've often heard the story of the company was about to settle an FCPA violation. The Department of Justice prosecutor excused herself, and for some reason it's a her in this story, went to her office and called the company hotline to find it was a non-working number. Um, and that scuttled the settlement. So if you have a hotline, make sure it's a working number. And if you have an Airbnb and somebody uh, checks in on a day when you don't have anyone on site, make sure your hotline is a working number. Okay, you want to give us a rant, Jonathan? Yeah, my rant is, um, again, concerns, uh, I guess, the global world. 
But as some of you will have seen, we are in the process of electing a new leader of the Conservative Party. When I say we, of course, it's only members of the Conservative Party. So we, uh, we as in me, has no say in that. But the Conservative MPs will elect one of their number to be the new uh, new leader of the Conservative Party and and as a result, the new prime minister with a with a secondary vote amongst conservative members. So a relatively small number of people electing our new leader, um, just as with Theresa May, uh, the election for her to replace Cameron, which didn't go to public vote. And one of the real issues has bizarrely in this election been Esther forms. Now. Why is that relevant? Well, it seems that one of the leading candidates, Michael Gove, um, uh, it has been revealed, was railing against the uh, middle class's uh, predilection, if you like, for hosting druggy dinner parties where um, the topic of conversation was intellectual chit-chat but the agenda for some of these meetings was recreational drug use. And it seems that uh, Mr. Gove used his newspaper column prior to being a politician to rail against such parties, whilst simultaneously it is alleged hosting them. And that has led a number of candidates for the next UK Prime Minister to be um, asked the direct question about their recreational drug use with some interesting comments, a, uh, a drug-laced lassie being drunken in the Himalayas. That's a yogurt drink, but apparently it's possible to stuff that yogurt drink with recreational drugs being one. And why that's become more of an issue is, of course, one of the job requirements of the British Prime Minister is to travel to the US for international meetings, including bilateral meetings with the US administration. And as we saw from Trump's visit, that's likely to be all the more relevant if we're trying to negotiate a bilateral trade treaty, if there is Brexit. And what a number of people have been concerned about is that given the admissions about drugs use, which many of the candidates have made, can they be allowed access to the US? And should they have been allowed access to the US in the past? And that's because Esther eligibility question one says, do you have a physical or mental disorder or are you a drug abuser or addict? And obviously, either some of these politicians have answered the question honestly and said that they have previously abused drugs and the benign US border force officials have allowed them in anyway, or the less comfortable route is they could have been dishonest about their prior drug use and have gained access to the US effectively by deception. And if somebody has done that in the past, is that somebody that the US administration are going to welcome 
with open arms for trade talks. So I guess my shout out is to the US Department of Homeland Security for asking a question on an ESTA form that has all of a sudden become a key element in the election of the UK's next prime minister. Most interesting. Jay Rosen, what do you have for us today? I have a shout out and um, I read this, I think, over the weekend and it's just a wonderful story. There was a young autistic boy who was in Florida going to the Universal uh, Studios uh, Resort and he was being very patient and all day long he wanted to know, his name was Ralph, he's nine years old, he wanted to know when they were going to get to the Spider-Man ride and he waited and he waited to the end of the day and when they went to the ride, Ralph was told that it was uh, closed right now because it was malfunctioning and uh, being an autistic young man, he decided to have a little bit of a tantrum and he got down on the ground and he started kicking and screening. And what was interesting was the ride attendant there, a woman named Jennifer Welchel, who's known to her colleagues as Mama Jen, got right down on the floor, on the ground next to Ralph, and comforted him, just really trying to see the world from his point of view. And I know in the past we've had stories where we've looked at innocent passengers being dragged off airplanes because employees did not have decentralized authority to act and to do what was right. I think it's heartwarming that this employee at Universal Studios was able to get down onto Ralph's level and comfort him in his time of need. So although the Rosen family is uh, very much into Disney World and Disneyland, we might just uh, put a stop to uh, uh, Universal Studios Orlando in the next time we find ourselves in Florida. Good stuff, Jay. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I hope you enjoyed this part two of our special two-part podcast series on the Trump administration and compliance review of the first half of 2019. Today, we had Jay Rosen, Jonathan Armstrong, and myself. Our prior episode had Matt Kelly, Sarah Haddon, and Michael Volkoff. You can check out the prior episode on Everything Compliance iTunes channel, which uh, just went live. So if you don't have it, check it out. The Everything Compliance Gang will be back in July for more commentary on the state of compliance. Thanks again for listening. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud part of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.